Well, as you know, we are back into Psalm 119. Uh, we took a eight-month eight break here a while ago to uh, teach you the book of James. And uh, we actually started Psalm 119 a couple years ago and got through verse 56, went over to James, taught that for eight months, and now we're back into this wonderful psalm, Psalm 119. Today we're going to be looking at verse 63, but it's in the eighth stanza, and that is verses 57 through 64. One thing I've learned while teaching through Psalm 119 is that there's such a thing as hybrid sermons. That is a mixture between the expositional and the topical. My preference, of course, is topical preach. I mean, uh, expositional preaching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Watch out, lightning might strike. <laughs> My preference is expositional teaching, although there is a place for topical preaching. Uh, but in Psalm 119, the author uh, supports his, his premise that the Word of God is important to all of life for everyone who wants to follow God wholeheartedly, and he does so through the use of topics. He uses topics to show you that the Word of God is important in this part of your life. It's important in that part of your life. And so this is a really a hybrid sermon series because I'm teaching expositionally, but also I'm required to look at the topics the author uses. All right? So today's topic or expositional sermon on a topic is found in verse 63. It says this, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. Teaching a expositional and topical sermon series about a text of Scripture like Psalm 119 is challenging yet convenient. It is challenging to have to think through the subject matter and organize my thoughts around the topic to make biblical, logical, and a beneficial sense of the matter. This is a challenge for all topical preaching. The convenient part of having a sermon series like this is that if there is a topic that I think our church needs to hear, I can spend a little extra time on it on Sunday morning as long as it's addressed in the verse, chapter, and book under study. So if I, for example, come along to verse 63 and say, hey, I think it might be a good idea to spend a little bit of time on speaking on love in the body of Christ, Here's your opportunity, says the Holy Spirit. And so I do. Today we're going to look specifically at verse 63, and I'm going to try to preach to you from this, this particular verse a sermon that has expositional elements, but also topical elements. I want to spend a little extra time on this verse because it is so critically important to the Christian life. I think the subject matter of this verse is central to what it means to function as a body of Christ which I think all of us are called to do as Christians, and particularly what pastors are called to nurture. That is, love within the body of Christ. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus in his new commandment, we, we read earlier, but I'll read it again from John 13, says this, a new commandment I give you, not a new suggestion, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. This idea of love in the body of Christ was critical to Jesus' thinking 
and central to his teaching. The Apostle John, one of his primary disciples in Jesus' earthly ministry, picked up on this. And he's, he, his whole ministry, John's whole ministry, was really focused on this issue. As you read through the book of 1 John, this comes out glaring and blaring at you. This idea of loving the brothers and sisters of the church. His first epistle begins with a, com or a conversation about fellowship in the body of Christ. Fellowship between believers. The idea of, of loving one another and having companionship within the church was important to the Apostle John. And to make it clear, companionship goes way beyond having a fishing buddy or a shopping friend. Companionship includes the idea of fellowship, love, accountability, encouragement, service, and so forth. And I don't have time to unpack all those things, but I just want you to know that there's this umbrella of companionship includes a large number of important subjects to the Christian. The idea of companionship in believers' relationships is not only a primary subject in the New Testament, it's also sprinkled throughout all of Scripture, including Psalm 119, verse 63. When you come across a Psalm 45, which is a messianic psalm, in other words, it's about the Messiah, and verse 7, God calls believers companions of Christ. We are called companions of the creator of the universe. How does that sound to you? Jesus, in John 15, called his followers friends or companions. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, the Apostle Paul goes beyond the idea of companionship with the Creator to being co-heirs with Christ. In Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Who sanctifies? Christ, right? The Spirit of Christ in us sanctifies us. The author here says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that is us, have one source. That is why he, that is Christ, is not ashamed to call us brothers. You know that Jesus actually refers to you as a companion if you're in Christ? He refers to you as a brother, a close companion. It's a wonderful thought. Then you think about all the characters that we are aware of in Old and New Testaments that were companions, famous companions, Abraham and Lot, Isaac and Rebekah, David and Jonathan, Paul and Silas, Peter and John, Barnabas and John Mark. All these guys experienced this companionship that the author of Psalms 119 verse 63 is addressing. This is an important subject to the Christian. And I want to try to help you see that this morning. As you know, there are many differences between us, even in the church. We have all the human differences of gender, race, economic status, political leanings, and so forth. But then we add the differences that come with being a member of the body of Christ, like different spiritual gifts, like different levels of spiritual maturity. That adds to the complicating factor of being actual, genuine companions. So let's look at this. If we're going to be biblical, godly companions of one another, as we should be, as Christ desires us to be, we must be intentional about pursuing loving relationships within the body of Christ, or it will never happen. 
All right, so let's, let's dive into this here and look at the verse closely. And I want you to notice right off the bat that he, had, he describes his companions here in verse 63. Let me, let me ask you some questions, though, before we get into that, those specifics. And, and you know the answers to these questions. I just do that to get you into my brain. Is there a need for companions in life, especially the Christian life? Of course, you would understand I mean, and know the answer to that question. Is there an advantage to a person who will support us and challenge us in our daily life and in our pursuit of God? The, every Christian would say, yes, of course. But as Americans, we have somewhat of a disadvantage in actually believing this. We are Americans, after all, are we not? We are self-sufficient, independent, capable people. And to admit that we need companions would be to undermine a basic principle of what it means to be an American. I am independent. I'm capable. You can come along if you want, but I don't need you to, kind of attitude. That's where we live. That's our life. In our text today, I want to show you how it may be American DNA, but it's not godly DNA. The Bible makes this clear in many places. In this one particular place, it's, it's quite obvious. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Uh, evidently, one of the smartest guys that ever lived said this, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and threefold cord is not quickly broken. This was in the Old Testament. This was not what, way before Jesus' time. In our text today, I'm going to unpack one step of the four steps I shared with you last week on keeping God as your portion. Verses 61 through, I mean, uh, 57 through 60 talk about making him your portion. Verse 61 through 64 talk about keeping him your portion, keeping him the focus of your life, keeping the, your priority on God. I'm going to pick out the third step in that four-step process of keeping God your portion and highlight it today from verse 63. I am a companion of all who fear me, who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. So, the psalmist calls this befriending godly people concept companionship. He tells us exactly the kind of companions we need. First, I want you to notice the description of good companions here in this verse. That is that they fear God and they obey him. And we'll look at these one at a time and then I'll go into some application points. So first of all, I want you to notice that the first thing this particular author desires in a companion is that they fear God. That's the first thing that he looks for when he's looking for a companion of that level. Now, the fear of, of God is a joyful thing to those of us who know him, but it's a repulsive thing to those who don't know God. There, there are two ways to view this fear. The first is servile fear. This is the fear that comes from overbearing authority. You know what I'm talking about. It results in hatred towards the one in authority. It's like the hatred that the slaves had for their masters. That they just wish they would die. 
The only reason that there is obedience under this type of servile fear is because the master has the authority and power to enforce compliance. You'd better or else kind of attitude. How many people function well under that type of relationship? Very few. Servile fear creates a hatred, not a loyalty. You'll notice in verse 61, the wicked fear God. But it's because they have a wrong idea of who he is. Their, their worldly view of God is that what the devil would want. The devil would want, the, the world want us, in fact, included, to think of God as a celestial ogre, as a killjoy, as an angry tyrant, one who can't be trusted. Why follow him? He's mean. Idea. That comes from a servile fear. But the, the type of fear that the author of here in verse 63 wants us to think of is a filial fear. That is filial, F-I-L-I-A-L. This is a completely different kind of fear. It's a fear of offending, a fear of disappointing someone you love. You know what I'm talking about. When you first started dating, you were interested in not offending the person you were dating. You had a filial fear, making sure that they were feeling well about things. You would ask them, how are we doing? Is this right? Is this wrong? You, you had a filial fear for that person because you love them. Their, their love is so great for the individual, the person who has filial fear, they go to great lengths to ensure that the person is happy, that they're pleased. This is what we read of through the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 32, verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts. What kind of fear? Filial fear that they may not turn from me. Why won't they, return, they turn from God? Because they love him. He wants to do good to us and I will put the fear of me the filial fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn from me, so that they will not want to turn from me. It's a loving respect that God implants into the hearts of his people. You see what happens here is before you know Christ, you have this servile fear of this supreme being who might smash you if you make a misstep. But then you encounter the gospel where you hear that he loves you and he sent his son to die for you and you discover that he's a good God. This gospel changes our fear of God from a servile fear, this fear of a cosmic tyrant, to a filial fear of God that strives to please him and wants to be with him. The gospel does that for you and me. Filial fear results in two things. The first is reverence for God. When you come to Christ by faith, guess what comes with that faith? A reverence for God. Before, you might be interested in running from him or shaking your fist in his face. Now you wish to revere him, make much of him. When you're consumed with the sense of God's majesty and holiness and goodness, you do everything you can to not offend him but fully please him. You remove things from your life that you know displease him that might hurt his heart. Why? Because you love him. It's that simple. Jeremiah 10 says this, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. 
Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there's no one like you. Why wouldn't we want this relationship with you, is Jeremiah's asking. It produces a reverence, this filial fear. Do you have this reverence for God? Then there is a good chance that there is this implanted love for God in your life. Second thing it, it does, second thing it produces, is careful living. Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul made note of this. He said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You're saved, now exercise this filial fear. Pursue Christ's likeness, pursue God's pleasure. Peter also had some ideas about this in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then here we go. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. While you're out there in the world, live for Jesus, is what Peter said. Many of the most well-known saints have been commended for their fear of God, their filial fear. Job, the book of Job starts out with saying Job was a God-fearing man. That doesn't mean he was afraid of him, like God's going to smash him. No, he, was, he had a filial fear for God. He wanted to please God in everything he did. Job, Abraham, David, Obadiah, and so forth throughout the Old Testament describes these guys as fearful men, fear of God. The filial fear of God influences people greatly. It reminds us of how sin separates us from God. You remember Joseph, one who was described as fearing God in Genesis 39, when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. Do you remember his response to her? How can I do this thing and offend my God? It's a filial fear. He didn't want to offend God because he loved God. Isaiah 59, we know that sin separates us from God. We read this here. By the way, this is the NET translation. I like the way it sounded. But your sinful acts have alienated you from your God. What alienates you from God? Your sinful acts. And so a filial fear influences us to recognize that immediately. When I sin, there is a relational separation between, between me and God. Secondly, a filial fear motivates obedience, which is, flows out of the first one. If you have a deep love for and awe of God, it's going to motivate you to obey what he has said. It's not hard to understand. It's the same in, with any relationship. If you love someone, you don't want to do things that offend them. The less, you lo the less love you have for God and the lower your view of God is, the less you're going to be motivated to obey him. So just look at your life. How motivated are you to obey God in all things, in all areas of your life? The more you're motivated, the more filial fear you have of God, the more you love him. Exodus 20, 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear, that's the servile fear, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him, that's filial fear, may be before you that you may not sin. A filial fear results in an avoidance of sin. 
When you love and respect someone, you do all you can to please them, not offend them. It works in human relationships, and it works in our relationship with God. Same way. Next, it motivates service to others. When I want to please God, you know what it does for my relationship with you? It makes me want to serve you. Because me serving you pleases him. You see how that works. First John, you want to know how that works? Read First John 1 through 5. And the, the, the next thing I want to share with you about the influence filial fear has in the people of God, has in you and me, is that when you exercise filial fear, it is more contagious than the flu. It's contagious, friends. When I see you serving God because you love him deeply, it motivates me to do the same, which is a wonderful reason why parents should be faithful Christians in front of their children and why I should be a faithful Christian in front of you and vice versa. It motivates people when they see you serving or loving, fearing God, revering him. These companions that the author of Psalms here is writing, these companions that he desires are those who fear God. Secondly, they also obey God. You see that in the second half of the verse? I'm a companion, all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts, those who obey. Those who fear God and those who keep his precepts are the same people. I just explained that to you. If you fear him, you'll be careful to obey him in all things. You're not going to be indifferent or apathetic towards any issue of obedience in your Christian life. You're not going to say, oh, that's no big deal. When God says it is a big deal, you're going to agree with God in these things. You're going to be obedient. Jesus, of course, you remember this in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. So, I want to have companions who fear God and obey him, is what the author is saying, is what you and I should be saying. So how do we develop these kind of companionships? If they're so important to our development in the Christian life, to becoming like Christ, if they're so important for my children to become like Jesus, if they're so important for you to influence me and me to influence you, how do we do it? It's a good question. How do we develop these companionships? Do you have them? Do you have good Christian companions who will help you along the path of Christ-likeness? Who will be there to pick you up when you fall? Who are they? If you can make a quick list in your brain, who are those kind of people in your life that are actually in your life? Not people you run into in the lobby once a week. I'm talking about people that you're actually companions with. Who are they? We all know, of course, that we need to avoid evil companions, don't we? This is one of the first lessons we learn. We usually learn this sometime in the teenage years, if not earlier. Of course, some people never learn this. But we must be discerning about our choice of companionship. And evil companions, just to be clear, aren't those who get you into trouble. Evil companions are those who aren't willing to get messy with you. They won't say what needs to be said to you. They're, they'll rather avoid a difficult conversation than to have it because it's uncomfortable. 
That's an evil companion. That's a fair weather friend. Don't call me into your, your muddy situation here. We can be friends if we're on the golf course, but forget the mud bowl here. I don't want to talk that. See, evil friends ignore your damaging habits. People who won't say something when you, they know they should are evil friends. They're not godly companions. And unfortunately, the church is full of them. You see, humans have a need, a built-in, God-ordained need for companionship. We need encouragement. We need support. We need love. We need help. We need challenge. Many times, we need outside perspective. As Christians, this need is magnified. When we come to faith, we're called to live for Christ and to please God and as you know, if you've ever tried that, it's difficult, isn't it? Sometimes you need an outside perspective who will say, hey, John, have you thought of this? I think you're missing this. I need that. You need that. Do you have those kind of people in your life? Or is your life filled with yes men? <clears throat> you're so awesome. It's so great to have you around. See you next Sunday. What kind of companions do you carry? Friends, you become like those you spend time with. Isn't that something that your parents told you when you were really young? You're going to become like the people you hang out with. So don't hang out with Johnny. That guy's bad. It seems that our parents were onto something. In Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools, they're going to catch it. So if you're not like the godly person that you would like to be, then what is your, what is your course of action? If you're not like what you want to be, that ideal Christian that you have in your mind, what is your steps? What do you do? Here's a godly biblical idea. Go get godly companions. And keep them close. We imitate those that we want to be like. Proverbs 22, 24 through 25. Make no friendships with a man given to anger, nor go with a ratful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in the snare. Of course, you've heard 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Don't be deceived. Bad company run, ruins good morals. And the opposite is also true. Hanging with godly people turns you into a godly person. Let's look at the nature of companionship. companionship. What does a good, godly companion look like? Well, we've covered most of these things, but let me reemphasize mutual obedience. Our lives should reflect the same fear of God and obedience that the godly people we know do. All those who fear God and obey him have a common faith. Jude verse 3 says. We all have the same spirit, the same faith, the same hope for glory. We ought to have the same pursuits in life. <clears throat> Including a committed obedience. We should also have mutual worship. Not only mutual obedience, but mutual worship. 
We should worship regularly and often with like-minded companions. Hebrews 10.25 is familiar to most of us. Don't neglect the meeting of yourselves with other believers. But it goes beyond that. Instead of seeing how many times of worship you can miss and still pass the test, which I think is the standard in our day, think about how many times you can gather with like-minded believers. Is there a prayer meeting tonight? Okay, there's your hint. Okay, let's move on. Don't want to get too personal. Don't want to be a good companion or anything like that. <clears throat> How about mutual love? Mutual love. We have mutual obedience, mutual worship, mutual love. We should love our companions as they in turn love us. This is not just a New Testament concept. The psalmist in chapter 16 says this, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Okay, that's a good place to start for every believer. But then look what the psalmist adds. This is David. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Is that your attitude towards other believers? You see, <clears throat> love doesn't disappear when things go sour. When someone in our body is going through uncomfortable difficulty, that's when we rally, not retreat. Listen to what the Apostle John said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that is in Jesus. I'm your partner in tribulation. Do you have somebody like that? Do you have a companion like that, friend, who is a partner in your tribulation? No matter how dark it is, you can call them and they're there totally understanding, saying what needs to be said and not saying what shouldn't? Do you have those kind of people? <clears throat> Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, that we need to be in brotherly love with one another and have brotherly affection for one another. You've heard of the words he used, agape. You've heard that word before. That is the idea of brotherly love. And then Philadelphia is the next word he used in the same sentence, which has the idea of brotherly affection. We should pursue these things as Christians, loving one another as brothers, being affectionate towards one another as good siblings. This is the kind of companionship we should seek and offer. Seek and offer. The thing that, that all Christians need to understand is that our new nature versus our old, our new nature is predisposed in this direction. How? By the presence of the Holy Spirit. So if you are in Christ, if you are truly a believer, a Christian, you have the Spirit of God in you. And guess what? That same Spirit is in me. This causes a connection between us. We're predisposed to an intimate, loving relationship with one another. <clears throat> 1 John 5, 1. <clears throat> Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God, right? That means you're in the family of God, in that first line. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. God has converted your soul. You are in the family of God. Now listen. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever who has been born of him. 
So if you love God and I love God, we should love each other. Because of the deep gratitude for what God has done for each of us through Jesus Christ, what do we do? We extend grace, mercy, kindness to all who are in Christ. No matter what their race, no matter what their sin, no matter what their challenge, we extend the grace, mercy, and love of Christ to them because they are in Christ. 1 John 4.11, again, beloved, if God so loved us, he loved us in spite of our sin, while we were sin, while we were in rebellion, God loved us. The apostle John, who sat at Jesus' feet, said, we also ought to love one another. You've extended amazing grace, haven't you, Christian? Have you extended one-tenth of that to the people who've offended you? That is what we're called to do. Actually, more than one-tenth, I think. Somewhere above one-tenth. I want you to, if you have your bulletin with you, <clears throat> pull that thing out and look at the song that you sang so enthusiastically earlier in the day. Oh, how good it is. Oh, how good it is. When the family of God, that is the people who love Jesus, dwell together in the spirit of faith and unity, where the bonds of peace and acceptance of love, man, it feels like we're in the, near a campfire, doesn't it? <laughs> so with one voice we'll sing to the Lord, and with one heart we'll live out his word till the whole earth sees. That's the idea of John 13, 34, and 35, right? If you love one another, man, people will know that you are my disciples. Till the whole world sees that the Redeemer has come. You know how we prove to the world that Jesus is real and that he lives within us? Apologetics. Is that right? No, it's not. It's loving one another. That is our apologetic. That we can get along with each other. That we serve one another. We meet each other's needs. That we are good companions to those who love Jesus. Oh, how good it is on this journey we share to rejoice with the happy and weep the so, with those who mourn. When's the last time you weeped with someone who mourned that wasn't in your biological family? When's the last time you weeped with someone who was mourning? We sang about it this morning, must be often. Uh, for the weak find strength, the afflicted find grace when we offer the blessing of belonging or maybe companionship. Oh, how good it is to embrace his command to prefer one another and forgive as he forgives, and so forth. Friends, that is the song of companionship. This is what it means to be a good companion, what we sang, which is our next point. And I've heard people, even in this church, say, well, no one's friendly to me. And my response usually is, with much kindness, are you friendly? No one's friendly to me. Well, are you friendly? If anyone desires to be a friend, what's the word require? To show yourself friendly. You don't sit in the corner and scowl. I know which dogs to pet. Do you? We all know which dogs to pet and which dogs to annoy. To, to annoy, yeah. Yeah, we like that too. Avoid, I should say. 
Instead of complaining you have no friends, be a good friend. How do you start? Well, by being friendly. Smiling instead of scowling. Walking across the room with an outstretched hand instead of sitting in the corner wishing someone would do that to you. Be friendly. Be loving. Do you prefer others? Be hospitable. Do you invite others? Be faithful. Are you there to encourage and sharpen whatever needs to be done as a good friend? Are you there doing it? So let's not complain about the fact that we have no good companions. Let's be those kind of people for the people around us. It's like the person says, I'm looking for the ideal spouse. Are you that? Choosing companions. The companions we choose must fear and obey God, just like the psalmist. It's not too complicated. Do your companions fear God? Do they obey God? Then they're your people. Choose them. Find people who have a track record of faithful obedience. And don't be satisfied with your affinity groups. Seek out those who will draw you Christward. Step out of your comfort zone. Good discipleship rarely happens in comfort zones. Come out of that place and seek out people who will draw you Christward. You know, a good place to do that is here. It's one of the reasons we meet. It's not just because we're commanded to, but this is where we find good companions to help us along the path. You know, I've referred to this verse already, Hebrews 10, 25. It says, don't neglect the meeting of yourselves, which we're not, you're here. It says, be here regularly. And I know there's a lot of things that may entice you away from Sunday morning, like rainy days. Did, did any of you in this room get up this morning and say, ah, oh, it's rainy, I think I'll stay home today? Huh? A few of us did. I did. I said, now, who could preach for me today? Rainy weather, sometimes we'd rather stay at home. Here's, no, here's the weird thing. If it's sunny, we'd rather stay home. Rainy or sunny, rain or shine, I'd like to miss church. Holiday weekends, a runny nose, gloom, fatigue, relational issues with others who are here. But having godly companions means that God provides a way to keep you growing in faith. You need to be around them. You need to be with them as often as you possibly can. As we approach the summer months, I think we need to go out of our way, Sun Valley Church, to confirm, to affirm, and deepen our companionships here at Sun Valley Church. This encourages our faith mutually, and it shows all of Yakima that we actually know Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, what a wonderful reminder you've given us in Psalm 119, verse 63, of your desire that we live in community, that we walk faithfully with other companions of like mind who fear you and obey you. God, make us those people. Make us the kind of people that others would love to have companionship with. Help us to seek out those people and 
see and find them here at Sun Valley Church. Thank you, God, for providing so many good companions here. I pray that, that we would all find that companion or two that would encourage us in our walk of faith, in our pursuit of Christ. Bless us as a church, God. Bless us as individual pilgrims who, who are seeking Christ-like, God-honoring companionship. Help Sun Valley Church to be that for any who would desire it. And I pray this in the name of our great companion, Jesus Christ. Amen.